welcome to the OT Digest podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kasparo, the founder of otgraphically.com, where I synthesize research into visually appealing graphics. On this podcast, we take research and make it more fun and interesting in order to quickly hear the most updated evidence all around the world. I interview authors, share research tips, and provide practical examples that I hope you can use and incorporate into your interventions the very next day. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome everybody (laughs) to... um, we're doing a little bit of a evidence-based chat <laughs> tonight. <laughs> uh, my name is Katie. I'm the founder of OT Graphically, and this is Turkessa. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I am Turkessa Francis. I am a professor at the University of Buffalo, and I also run a blog called uh, otresearchcorner.com. Yeah, and I'm, I met you through, because I noticed we were posting very similar things and had similar um, ideas, and I just loved what you were doing. And um, it's just, if you go on the blog, I highly recommend it, because there's a lot of great resources there. Oh, thank you. Thank but, you. I love your work as well. I really do. <laughs> You're talented. I feel like you got the text and I got the visuals, so. I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> we could do something together, like, or we could really do something together. Yeah, that's for another another conversation. <laughs> Absolutely, I know. I feel like every time I have a meeting with someone, I come away with a few more projects. So that's yeah. okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what um, evidence based practice means and what you know that looks like. Um, and I have never personally been a professor, but Teresa has, so that's kind of nice to have that perspective. Um, so. I'll maybe share what evidence-based practice means to me, and then we can see what you have to say too, and we can go from there. But um, to me, I think it means um, just really analyzing what I'm doing in the clinic and making sure that it is up to date, that it is valid, and that it is proven it works, you know, to the best of our ability for what, from what we have available, um, Mm -hmm. and really being intentional about that and, um, being consistent. And when it's, when I feel like I get stuck, you know, go back and, and see if there's something new or fresh that I, that I'm missing. Um, and always being kind of in that because things change by the day. So, right. Right. How about you? What does that mean? So I, you know, I share the same thoughts as you, Um, I think of evidence-based practice really as using assessments, interventions that have been found to be effective using research methods. And I think I like the way you've described how you use evidence-based practice in your clinical setting, because really evidence-based practice can look different depending on the clinician, the setting, interest, practice area, need, But what's consistent is the practitioner uses research to guide the clinical practice, which is exactly what you said, you know, just a different way of saying it. Um, I also like that point about being intentional, sort of always reassessing what you're doing and making sure that it's up to date based on what's out there uh, within the field. Um, So definitely good points. Do you feel like when were you... um 
most interested in evidence? Have you always been, or is it something new? Um, I've always been interested in evidence. I think that's why I went back to my terminal degree and wanted to learn how to just, you know, sort of consume and apply research, you know, just more effectively. I do have to say, though, over the years, my view of of research has, uh, how I, um, sorry, consume and apply research has changed quite a bit. And meaning that I think I used to be that person that felt that research needed to come from the ivory tower and research needed to come from peer-reviewed journal articles uh, consistently. And I didn't look at other areas of research, such as like what you're doing, your podcasts. When you speak to researchers and you talk about their research, how they apply it, their journey, that's all part of evidence-based practice. And that was not my thought process in the beginning, but it's grown over the years for sure. I don't know if those tools have been around either. Um, yeah. When I was coming out of school, I don't think there was a podcast or that just wasn't a method that OTs have got, had gotten into yet. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think AOTA had a podcast for a little bit uh, related to evidence. It was sparse. It wasn't as consistent as it is right now. They had it, but it's the same thing. Like our mindset was not what we consider evidence. We consider more coming from a research article standpoint. And a lot of the times it's just people don't have time to review the research articles, but they have time to listen to a podcast. They have time to read maybe a a shorter article and say like an OT practice that uses a different method of research. Um, It's less stringent, but still there. Um, And I think people have just changed their view on how they consume research for the good, definitely for the better, for sure. Um, And uh, on how they apply it in their clinical setting. Yeah. Do you think it's because there's more information out there to go through, or do you think it's the same amount? We just are busier. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the same amount. We're just busier. And I think the producers are kind of recognizing that and saying, Hey, you know, this is catching on this sort of, shortened method of presenting research is catching on. Let's get it to the people. Because in the end, you're, if you're producing this research as a researcher and no one's consuming it and applying it, it's not really getting to the people. I mean, we don't, it's not a vanity project when you do a research project, it's definitely to help people. And so whatever way the person feels comfortable consuming it, you need to bring it, bring it to the person in that manner. Um, so I think it's just the same amount. They're just thinking of different ways to present it to people. Just good, I think. Yeah, I like how you said bring it to the people. Um, yeah. I think that is my, what you described is kind of what is, um, I have a very specific professor in mind and that is her story. She had great research and just never got to the right people. Um, and then someone else did something that was very similar and kind of got all the credit, you know, not that it's for credit, but it's just like, it, it just hurt my heart a little bit. Um, and I would hate to have someone work their whole life on something like you, you get really specific about what you're studying and you dedicate your lives to it. And then it never gets used. That's just so yes. sad to me. Yeah. It is difficult to sort of understand that. I think that a lot of the times, like, um, because I look at a lot of research journals, I'll see one topic, say an open access journal, which I'm very passionate about open access. Mm-hmm. And that same topic will be downloaded 500, 600, 700 times. 
And then you'll go to like an article where you need to have, you need to pay for access, like a paywall kind of thing. Same topic, maybe like 10, 15 views. And it's like, it's all about access and, and what's important to people and how you present it. So, I mean, I don't know, it is unfortunate, but that's how we are as creatures for everything. If it's easy for us to get to, if it's in a matter that we understand, we gravitate towards it, consume it, and then apply it. We kind of need to respect that about people as well. So that's why when I talked about the ivory tower, I kind of recognized, oh, everyone's not really reading journal articles. I kind of need to expand my understanding and expand my application and expand my reach. And so that's part of growing as a clinician as well and as a researcher as well. So um, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if many people know this, but it actually costs a lot of money to put a research article in open access. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of researchers take that hit themselves, which is sad. That seems backwards to me, but it does. it's expensive. Um, just for my own personal experience, sometimes it caught from Ajon, I think it costs like a thousand dollars. The more um, like the open access journals, um, I mean, $300 per author. So it's expensive. Oh, wow. And it is expensive. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. Um, However, um, some grant proposals allow for authors to, researchers to include that in their grant request to make it open access. And so that's an option as well uh, for researchers who want to have a a bigger reach. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love how you're also, you're saying, you said this phrase a few times, um, like in provide it in the method that people, can you say it? You said it so soon and I'm saying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I paid closer attention to what I was saying. <laughs> I guess provide it their preference or the, the, the way they consume it. Um, maybe that's what I said. <laughs> yeah. Like in the way that works for them, I guess. Yeah. The way that works for them best. Yeah. That works best for them. Yeah. Um, I think that's important for us to understand as well. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people that they, the thought of reading a 15 page research article is daunting to them, mm-hmm. but out of reading like a one page summary of it is just a lot more like appealing to them. It doesn't make it any worse as long as they apply it. That's what really matters. So as a free research, well, what are you researching right now? So my focus is on literacy and the role of occupational therapy, particularly literacy engagement and its impact on reading achievement is something that I I just finished and I'm working on trying to uh, publish that particular research article. Cool. That's that's awesome. I'm really interested in literacy as well, especially with COVID and a lot of kids not receiving like early literacy that they need and now they're behind. I'm I'm finding that very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge like passion project of mine, just based on like what you said, especially during this time, there's like inequity with access to literacy tools, Mm -hmm. populations, and I've seen the impact greatly. So I agree with you completely. Definitely an issue. 
it's just really interesting for me to hear kind of what's going on in the universities and what's like coming down the line. Yeah. Cause I think um, that is like another way to kind of catch people and implement things quicker, because if you already know it's coming out, you're going to look for it and then you right. want to read it. And then you're, or you're even going to like start being more interested in that and look yeah. for other things. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. There are a lot of niches that are growing right now. Mm-hmm. I think that literacy is one of them. Um, health literacy is another related to literacy. Um, even today, I, I went to a talk today with at work and they were talking about um, universal design. The person who spoke was an urban planner who uh, was looking at inclusive design. And she said, it's burgeoning. It's like at the tipping point where everyone is recognizing that it's important for us to look at inclusive design. And everyone's now like coming towards her to figure out how can they do it within their building. Mm -hmm. So the cusp of that, you're so right, is being able to be ahead of the curve, you know, consume the information before that way, when it sort of hits that tipping point, you already have all that background information. Mm -hmm. I think it's like at a tipping point where people are like, how can we help these individuals and these children learn? Because what we're doing is not working. Mm -hmm. As an OT, you can come in and say, well, you're not modifying the task properly and your outcome is just not realistic for the physical cognitive ability of this child. Let's try to figure out another way to help them read because what you're doing is not working. And I think it's coming at a tipping point as well. I see a lot more literacy articles than I used to before. So for sure, you're right. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, my sister is a literacy specialist in uh, educational system. So it's really interesting to talk to her about that too. And sometimes she talks about her day. I'm like, you're being an OT. Like, it's just interesting to me to hear her story. Well, do you have any other, you've said a few, but do you have any other tips or tricks for if people are really struggling with using evidence? I feel like a lot of times I hear the phrase is like time, of course, is a challenge, but, um, and access, yeah. I think just the intimidation factor can be really tough. Um, I remember at one point when I just like, wasn't really in the evidence or enough time, I just was like, Oh, the article, looking at an article is the last thing I want to do, but yeah. do you have any, <laughs> any tips or tricks with that? So one of the things I think is important for us to sort of recognize like ways of dealing with barriers and like my biggest thought, right? Or tip, I guess I could say, is recognizing that we need to change how we think about evidence-based practice in the sense that it doesn't need to look like you said, pouring over research on a daily basis because when someone who is working 10 hours a day with the mask on and everything and has had a really, really difficult day, their thought process at the end of the day is not, I need to go read a research article. Like their thought process is, I just want to go to bed, you know? But if you can think about research as just a lifestyle, right? Where you put little chunks of time and address and consume research in those little chunks of time, and then apply research as you can within the field to the best of your ability, then it'll be, you'll be able to be more consistent. We don't need to think about research as how many articles did you read? 
you need to chunk out two hours of your time for you to be able to read an article. You know, you need to be, you need to make sure that you're up to date on all the topics that are going on right now within your field. Stop thinking that way. So one of the things that I had done was I did, I'm very like, like a very concrete person. And I thought, I'm going to break down how to make time for research in this sort of structured way. And I did this, I had wrote a little post about it where I, I did the 15, 30, 45 rule. So 15 minutes a day, no, sorry, 15 minutes once a week, you look at your schedule. You lay it all out. If you're a school-based therapist, you look at your IEP dates, your intervention dates, everything for that week. If you're a clinician, you look at, you know, you think about the amount of evals you have per week, put that down and you have, you know, who you're going to see for that week, you put that down. What you're looking for within that 15 minute period of time that you're using to look at your schedule, chunks of time in your schedule where you're open to allow you to consume research. That's 15 minutes once a week. We all have that. Mm -hmm. 30 minutes every day read, right, review some sort of platform on occupational therapy. I personally like Twitter um, because Twitter allows for shorter characters um, and they have links that are available. So you can click on, you know, British Journal of Occupational Therapy when they release their, um, their journals monthly. You can click on that link and see what's available for that month. 30 minutes a day. That's lunchtime scrolling on your phone. Getting in line, scrolling on your phone. That doesn't take a lot of time. And within that 30 minute period of time, consume a good amount of information. Yeah. Going on within legislation to impact your practice, to impact what you need to focus on as a researcher, you can do that. We all can find that time. And then the largest chunk of time is that 45 minute time period. And that's going back to this thought of not having to consume like pour over research for hours per day and have that in the back of your mind. 45 minutes once a week, which I think we all could find in our time, right? We look, take our 15 minutes to kind of chunk it out. 45 minutes once a week, review an article of interest to you based on your practice area, based on your interests, right? And that's something that you can do. And I think that's how I would allow people to look at that time component for them to be successful. I like it because it's not something that says make time, you know, make two hours, make it happen. Say, you know, you're busy. Look for that chunk of time. Take a day, 30 minutes, just consume a little bit at a time. Take once a week, 45 minutes, go more in depth to look at something for you to be able to apply to your practice specifically. That's how I deal with that time. Sorry. Awesome. And you have a blog post on that? I do. Yeah. The 15, 30, 45 minute rule. Um, That's really memorable. Yeah. Um, Patent it. (laughs) What? You should patent that. I I should. 15, 30. I like the math of it too, because multiples of 15. (laughs) Yeah. And we're always thinking in units too. So I feel like. Yeah. It's. Two units, three units, one unit once a week, once a day, three units once a week. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, even smaller. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I like that. That's That's awesome. I think you mentioned too the daunting aspect of Mm -hmm. 
that information in there, right? Like, oh, p-values and, you know, t, t to test to t test statistic or what else do they have in there that whenever we're looking at statistics, correlation and all that stuff. Really, you need, if we've been trained, right, from first to six as well. We all took psych stats, prerequisite for OT school for most schools. We all did some sort of thesis or some sort of research project as part of our degree as well. We have the knowledge to understand the material. So we have that, that basic knowledge. So my thought process with that is you don't have to look into the minutia of information when you're reading statistics. You really don't. You can look into that simple little statistically significant and the researcher tells you, and you can run with that and say, okay, this works for me. It's statistically significant. The population is the population that's in my clinic. I can work with that. The method, the measures are something that I can use within my clinic. I can work with that. The intervention is something that's doable. I can work with that. And just accept that and go with it and see how it works within your clinical setting. Because another thing about evidence-based practice, and you know this, if it works for someone in the research article, it may not work for your client in the field. So you're still taking data on whether or not it works for you or not. So it's a process. So don't feel overwhelmed that you don't understand the material. As long as you understand the bones of the article, the bones of the research, apply it and see if it works, collect your data, modify as you need to. Another thing is if you don't feel comfortable with that and you want to make sure that you really understand the research article, look at the discussion section. The researcher does all the work for you in analyzing the information, analyzing where the limitations are, analyzing how you can apply it to practice. All that work is done. So we can just lean on the researcher to help guide us in that way as well. That's my thought with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I always am like, oh, they did the statistics. That's good. And then I move on. <laughs> well, obviously I look for, you know, whether it's significant, but you know, there's a lot of letters that don't look like letters in there and yeah. things I don't need to know. <laughs> yeah. You really don't because it doesn't impact your practice, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're a researcher, you definitely want to be in the minutia. If you're a clinician, you don't really need it for you to be able to practice. So don't let that bog you down as well. I think the thing about research, like you said, is like people have these preconceived ideas and that bogs them down before they even start. No, so that's unfortunate. Change the mindset. And definitely, I think a lot more people will be open to, to just recognizing that they are and can use clinic, uh, clinical evidence within their practice for sure. Yeah. And it's really important that we do and then share it with the researcher. Like I, I think a lot of times we think they're maybe in an ivory tower or not um, accessible, but they love hearing from you. I do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Hear from me all the time. So I think um, when that bridge is broken down and that, or, you know, that bridge is created can Mm -hmm. really be powerful because we have a lot of valuable information for the researcher too. You are so right, because really, when you reach out to them, I'm sure they're super excited. Mm -hmm. Here they are thinking, oh my goodness, I want this to be applied in practice. 
a clinician is reaching out to me for clarification or for more information or whatever, you know, that's exciting to them. Mm-hmm. Create a community really of clinicians and researchers working together to impact practice. So you are so, so, so right. I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah, I've, uh, that's kind of like my dream. I have a little bit kind of <laughs> on my website right now where I have a few infographics to try to spark discussion. Uh-huh. And I'm hoping one day, you know, researchers, clients, and clinicians can all talk together and, and learn from one another because, you know, at the end of the day, that information will only speed up that process of the researcher research being more implementable because we'll right. be able to actually like, form what their next project is, which is kind of right. I agree. That's another thought of mine with helping people sort of like bridge that gap with research is having an accountability partner. And when there's always someone in your clinic, like, like, um, like an alumni, someone that you graduated from who likes research, you know, make a connection with that individual, discuss the research, discuss it on a walk or on a talk or you know, in the clinic to see what's going on and ways that you can kind of impact practice with the research that you've read. Um, That's another way of cutting down research consumption because you can split it between the two of you as opposed to just one person consuming all of it. Um, Goes along the lines of like journal clubs also being one area where that's another way to sort of uh, build a community around research. Yeah, I love that. Like going for a walk with old friends, you know, I think I, I've missed a lot of those connections I made in school, but to rekindle some of those relationships would be really, really cool. Um, that's awesome. You have some really unique ideas. I've not heard anyone talking about and I take them and run with them. Oh, you're so kind. (laughs) I'm just nerdy. (laughs) We all are a little bit in OT. I think we love, we love being out in OT. So I agree. I agree. Um, another thing I thought about is CEUs, mm-hmm. that a lot of people tend to think of CEUs as CEUs and it checks a box of meeting for NBCOT and their state, but a lot of the present- presenters put in so much background work researching their topic for application that it's really, they do all the work for you. You show up for an hour or two, get all the information apply to practice, see if it works for you, modify as needed. So I think people need to recognize that CEUs are, are another area where you can grow and, and use evidence as well. Um, they're like researchers as well. You go up to um, a presenter, interact, ask questions. They're always open to discussing how it works for their practice, what worked, what didn't work, their journey, their information. Um, and have that discussion with you as well. So I think CEUs are another area where um, we can use um, that information to impact our practice. Yeah, what I hear you saying is that our our vision or our understanding of evidence-based practice is maybe like this small, but it can be really expanded to some um, of these things and we're probably doing it, a lot of it already. Right, right, I agree, I agree. And another thing I like was, um, your infographics, I think that, and your infographics are amazing. Like, it's like, and I've told you this before, this is not something new, but it's like, you somehow make static 
like structures or static beings like dynamic, right? Like it's amazing. Your little squiggles like show <laughs> what works and what doesn't. And it's amazing because you can conceivably look at your infographics like within an hour, like not within an hour, sorry, within 10 minutes and get a complete research article and being able to apply it to practice. And I think that is another like way that we can learn from research is through using like infographics and podcasts and things like that um, as well. So I wanted to give a little shout out to you before we ended. That was my shout out to you as well. Thank you. That was unsolicited. So I appreciate that. It wasn't. It was definitely unsolicited. There was no money under the table for that. I appreciate that. That was really kind though. I've never heard it described like that. Yeah. And that's really helpful feedback. Yeah, it's um, dynamic. It's a static being. I, know I can't think of the word, but it's a static being that's dynamic based on how you use your, your little text and structures and things like that. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I very much feel like I'm telling a story. Yeah. That's how I, yeah. how I, I frame work it in my brain. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Ooh. Good for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I've been... Um, I've been enjoying it. I feel like I feel much more connected to the evidence when I do it too. So I like would love to, I would love a bunch of people to be able to do it, you know, yeah. and then, cause when you do that, then you really understand it. Cause right. you have to really know it in order to, to create that or else you're, you know, you're going to get stuck. So I agree. That's another thing I like about it is that you can tell that you've actually read and reviewed the material. And that's why it's so dynamic. It's because you're taking those words verbs and you're like those verbs and putting it on that infographic and I think that's it's major um and it's definitely a talent thank you you're welcome complimentary I appreciate it (laughs) we have a a few minutes um before we wrap up here do you is there anything like last minute or anything you want to share before we end about you know where we can find you and anything else about evidence-based practice (laughs) no I think you we mentioned access and just being able to get access. And I think that we've discussed that at nauseum. I think everywhere about open access and different uh, resources are available. If you want, I can provide some resources. Um, I know that when you do a podcast or whatever, you have little link stuff, um, little links to places that you can go for um, open access articles. I think that's one of another limiting factor is access for individuals. Yeah, that's a tough one because it it's pretty, a pretty big factor and it's yeah. the first factor, right? So if you can't get any access, then the rest of the things can happen. So, yeah, I think uh, there's some myths about that, that people think that they can't get access, that they only have some limited options for open access, but there are a lot of options for open access and there's a lot of app options for access as well. I think I've mentioned that you know, if you keep your email current, you can get access to the library for many schools, um, depending on um, what alumni relations work out with your particular school. You can have an act. You can have access as long as you keep signing in. Uh, some schools are different. Another way of getting um, access uh, is as a field or coordinator. A lot of times, schools because of the shortage. Um, of fieldwork sites. Um, schools are allowing fieldwork educators to get access to like library and stuff like that. So that's another option as well. You have a great blog post and then I created a graphic based on that blog post. So I'll make sure yeah. 
to kind of link those things. Yeah. And I, I always, we're kind of bouncing ideas off of each other all the time, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think somehow our paths are going to cross later on down the line. Mm-hmm. It happened organically. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's so cool to meet, you know, people online and then be able to meet, you know, and work together. And it's just the power of, of this past couple of years is amazing. Mm-hmm.